This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm in Rogers, Arkansas right now, on location, live at Ozark Beer Company. And joining me are Lacey Bray and Andy Coates of Ozark Beer Company. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming by, Jamie. Thank you very much. Uh, it's fun. You may, if you uh, read our Brewing Industry Guide magazine, you'll know Ozark because they were on the cover of the last issue, or the current issue of the Brewing Industry Guide. Uh, it's been nice to get out here in person and come see this on my Midwest, Mid-South, Midwest road trip. Uh, we're going to talk about how they make uh, beers here in Northwestern Arkansas. I've had a beautiful time up here yesterday. I caught a, a, a nice long mountain bike ride on some beautiful trails because uh, you know, those, that Walton family has paid for some pretty amazing bike facilities up here, and they're really working on turning this into a little little hub of uh, of bike activity. Uh, you know, in the south, a lot of fun things going on here in this town. Ozark, of course, has been here for a decade and has uh, kind of planted the flag for craft beer, um, making delicious, compelling, uh, also well balanced and accessible craft beer, uh, kind of spreading that craft beer gospel for all sorts of audiences here. We're going to talk about all sorts of things from barrel-aged beers to uh, pale ales and lagers, I imagine. Before we do that, like your flagship beer, you can rely on G&D Chillers for the same quality and consistency. G&D guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. They never stop, they draft, they craft, they service each and every brewery, big or small, all in an effort to build one hell of a chiller. For nearly 30 years, GD has been committed to cold. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by Raw North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. Raw North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character, suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let Raw North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Lacey and Andy, give me the nutshell beer story here. Uh, you know, what, uh, what brought both of you, uh, you know, through this kind of, uh, into this kind of career of craft beer? Um, I would definitely say that it was kind of a roundabout experience for us, for sure. We, you know, started out as raft guides and kind of found this raft path. guides. <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was a really, really fun way to spend uh, our early twenties, for sure. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and so, you know, getting. I think that we actually um, learned a lot from that process uh, working in like a small rafting company. Um, anything that goes wrong, you need to fix it. Sure, so like sure. if the car isn't starting, like it, it doesn't matter that you've never dealt with that before. It has to get running. And um, there's a self-sufficiency thing that comes from when you're on the river yep. too. Like, you know, you got to get everybody out and you got to make things happen. Right. Yeah. And so, yeah, when you're in the middle of the river, like you have to, figure out how to get everyone, everyone down. And so I think that has served us very well in that, uh, we, we tackle problems with a very solutions based answer and, and there has to be a way out of it. And so, so yeah, I think that has served us really well, especially in the last, you know, 18 months. So. Sure. Sure. So where did the, where did the beer piece uh, start in? So after uh, rafting for a number of years and living all over, all over, excuse me, all over Southwest Colorado, uh, we decided it was maybe time to do something else. So we actually moved up to Denver and I answered a Craigslist ad for a packaging job at Great Divide. And that's how it all started. So I uh, worked there uh, starting in 2005 and six, and then uh, Lacey got into Teach for America and into a grad school in Chicago. And so between that time, I went through the American Brewers Guild program out in sure. Vermont, mm -hmm. uh, which was awesome, and ended up getting placed uh, for my apprenticeship at Goose Island. Oh, what a terrible place to learn. Exactly. So, no, I, I frankly, um, I got really lucky. 
uh, at the time there were, you know, only a few brew pubs in the Chicago area and not really any production facilities at the time. And so it really, there weren't that many choices and, uh, I'm pretty thankful that, that there weren't because I, I ended up getting quite an education and, you know, experience from working there. Oh, that's great. And so you started working professionally in beer. What, uh, you know, you know, what did, where'd it go from goose? Island? I mean, at goose Island, would you, you, you yeah, so apprentice I was, there and then you I got a job there. Right? And then I became the coveted weekend overnight brewer position, <laughs> which is every production brewer's hey, dream. Hey, you uh, gotta pay your dues. No, no, no. At the, at the same time, there was a lot of great things about it because you know, I was the only person in the building, you know, from 6 PM to 6 AM Saturday and Sunday nights mm. that, if there was something going on, you had to fix it yourself or find out a solution. Um, so just the responsibility of that, I think, taught me quite a bit. Uh, and then once you know, a more full-time position came up inside the main brewer's rotation, you know, working through the cellar and different brew house shifts, uh, that's where I really learned, I think, what, what's brought us here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, at what point uh, did you start to think, Hey, you know, I've been doing this now for Goose Island for as long as I have, and maybe we could start our own brewery. And that's, that's the funny thing is I really didn't know that we could, I mean, at the time, you know, there were less than, you know, 4,000 breweries in the country and it wasn't something I think that either of us had on our radar. Uh, you know, once, once we left Goose, uh, when, when did Chicago, you leave Goose? Uh, it was 2009. Yeah. So we, oh, there was like less than 1500 breweries at I that mean, point. It was like, it was strange. I mean, sure, in comparison sure. to today's world, it's, I didn't know that we could do it or right. I don't think I really had the drive to do it at the time, to be honest. Um, it wasn't something we really talked about. And, you know, we, we took some time off, went out West to Washington. I worked at a winery for this, for the crush season. And then we went to South America for a while. We bought one-way tickets and didn't know when, <laughs> when or if we were coming back. Right, right. Um, so we frankly didn't have much direction at the time. Yeah. Um, and obviously we, you know, were looking for, for jobs back out West and we were pretty picky because we lived in some awesome places in Colorado and Washington yeah. and, and wanted to find the right spot. And there were some jobs coming up, but not a ton. And Lacey mentioned, Hey, you know, could we do this? Um, and after we traveled around that fall, and into the winter, you know, thinking about, I, I bet we could, you know, it was kind of the gold rush for, for brewing at the time. So it was a lot by accident, to be honest. I have, I happened to meet a really nice girl from Arkansas. <laughs> <laughs> and so then you moved back here and you started putting a plan together. Yeah. So we moved back here in 2010. Um, mm -hmm. and we lived in Fayetteville, which, uh, because at the time Benton County where we are now was a dry County. Wow. Um, wow. Arkansas. Arkansas still has over 40 dry counties, which is interesting to a lot of people not from the South or Mid-South. Sure. No, I remember it. I mean, uh, when I was, so I went to college at Mem and Memphis at Rhodes College. Oh, yeah. And uh, I had a, a college friend from Jonesboro, you know, and we would pop up to Jonesboro, you know, I don't know, once or twice a year just to go back because his family had a cabin or something. And if we went out there, you know, you had to stock up and bring the beer with you because, yep. uh, you know, weren't going to be able to buy beer around there. No, so it's, it's crazy that this still exists. This it is does. 2021 right now. Right. I went yesterday here to go buy a six pack in the, in the you know, the Walmart grocery store because they're all Walmart here. Um, you know, and it's a Sunday. And of you course, can't, you can't you can't even buy beer in a grocery store no. on a Sunday. The best thing is there's a, a couple of loopholes that uh, uh, Russ Melton from Diamond Bear Brewing in Little Rock, which was one of the pioneers of, you know, the late 90s um, for getting craft beer in Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, he did an amazing job with legislation over the years, and that was one of the main reasons we moved here to Arkansas to do this project was the laws are actually really lenient for alcohol producers overall. So you can't buy beer in Benton County on a Sunday unless you are a brewery. So we can sell you a keg to go. We can sell you a six pack. We can sell growlers, grumblers, crowlers, the whole nine yards. So. It's it seems like a weird legal protectionism for is. you. Like, I'm, I mean, I'm surprised that this retail behemoth that has a, would seem to have a vested interest in selling it themselves for sure hasn't changed those laws. I'm, I'm surprised. And basically, county by county can decide, or then towns within counties can have a vote. So in Washington County, Fayetteville does not sell on Sunday, but Springdale does, which is in the same county. They mm. basically border each other. So the alcohol laws are, are nothing but a, a web of 
I don't know, ways to trip yourself up. But in Arkansas, surprisingly, it's it's a great place to be. Sounds like, a, a, you know, a, a place that champions individual choice and lack of government regular. Oh, wait, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, sorry. Sorry. I digress. So you guys in 2010, you move here to Arkansas. You, yep. you decide to, to start a brewery. Um, Lacey, tell me about the, you know, what the, those first steps looked like. Yeah, definitely. I We definitely took it pretty slow in the beginning. So I um, worked teaching full time for the first couple of years while yeah. Andy worked on the business plan. And then we kind of jumped into trying to find investors to start the brewery up. And so in 2010, that had to be you know, its own particular challenge, too. Oh, most definitely, especially in this area, because, you know, we're still surrounded by dry counties, um, the craft beer boom had not really reached here at all, especially in terms of breweries. I think when we were here in 2010 to start, there might have been three other breweries that were in in the um, whole state. mm -hmm. And so it really was, um, yeah, really pushing ideas that people uh, didn't really understand and a lot of people weren't really comfortable with. Yeah. And so it it took us a year um, to find the investors and then it, it took us Oh gosh, probably another six or nine months to even find a location that would allow us to go in with a brewery here. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Not they wouldn't even let you build one here. Right. Yeah. Or, you know, at that point we were just looking at like places that we could rent and people were very, very uncomfortable with that. Yeah. Just so, the, oh, landlords didn't want a brewery yep, in there. One hundred percent. Just didn't know what it looked like. And we um, you know, after having traveled around up in the PNW and then um we knew Matt Lincoln then who was at Fremont um, and he still is. And so we had gone out to visit That's right. them. He was a Goose Island guy. Yep. And we really liked um, how they started. And, you know, it was really sure. a bare bones, like here's our warehouse. The warehouse is open on, you know, weekends and some evenings for tastings. And so we really kind of leaned into that model. And so our first location was just a big warehouse. And we had family and friends that donated old dining room sets and we would literally just pull out the dining room tables into like our space on, you know, I think it was Thursday nights, Friday, Saturday and Sunday. So looking back on it, I'm I'm really happy with where we are, but it, it's a really nice organic and like um, community focused way to really start to build the brand. Sure, sure. You know, and a lot of, I mean, especially through the the aughts and whatnot of craft beer, um, you know, craft beer was either a brew pub or it was a tasting room. And often the tasting room was just samples, not even, not selling pints, you know, a place where you would just go to try the beer before you then bought a growler or something to go home. Um, and it, you've been a part of this evolution and even the current brewery now showcases that evolution now it's a place with food trucks with uh you know um with you know communal tables and a large space where people want to come drink beer together you know grab some food and you know and and gather uh much different than than those early days uh let's talk a little bit about that kind of evolution or how you created beer to connect with people in a market where everyone was a little bit suspicious and no one knew what to make of craft beer. But before we do that, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever. So why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the most cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brands, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. Little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, what if you could take your favorite recipe and make a non-alcoholic version without sacrificing the flavor, color, or beer quality? And a no problem, the Alchemator from ProBrew uses proprietary membrane technology to strip the alcohol from the beer without sacrificing all the elements like flavor and color that make the beer great. Are you ready to brew like a pro? The Alchemator from ProBrew. And a no problem, email contact at ProBrew for more info. And of course, tell them that you heard it here on the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. So you decide now, this is what, 2011, early 2012, you open a brewery, but, you know, figuring out what kind of beer to make that's going to resonate with people who are not necessarily craft beer drinkers. If there's only three craft breweries in the entire state of Arkansas, uh, you know, what it, 
talk to me about that kind of creative process. What did you, where did you decide to plant your flag and, uh, you know, and why did you make some of those decisions? So our first beer we ever made, uh, that we put in a package was our American Paleo, just over 4%, really, really approachable, super uh, hops that are easy to get. Uh, it's just Columbus and Crystal. And the idea behind it was drinkability completely. It's this one of those Arkansas, if a lot of you have not been here is a really, really beautiful place. And most of it is still pretty wild. And, uh, People spend their time in the woods and on rivers and hiking, you know, exploring the state and, and other places. So we knew that we wanted to be the six pack that you grab for your weekend trip. Um, so like I said, drinkability over 4%. It's one of those nice and citrusy, not too bitter. It really comes down to my personal preference for drinking. Yeah. Lacey and I joke quite often that if I had my way, we would just make dry farmhouse ales and pale ales <laughs> and then, and then no one would come. Right. Right. So, uh, really that was the idea behind We knew that, that this would be people's first experience with craft beer in a lot of ways, especially coming to a brewery. Um, since we were the first brewery in Benton County after it became wet. And so with the large population base here, a lot of them had never had that experience. They maybe seen some beers, you know, on the shelf, but in terms of accessibility and and visiting a brewery, it just didn't exist. It wasn't part of like it's such an interesting thing. Like craft beer is now a cultural thing where right. people know, oh, brewery. We go to a brewery. But I mean, I remember my first experience in 1995 of going. I was like to a brewery in Salt Lake City. It was, it was like, oh wait, you go to a brewery and right. you buy a growler and then you bring it home and you drink this beer. like that that was a you know this is a new cultural thing you know for a lot of folks for sure no we we talked a lot of bit about just that we were you know 10 to 15 years behind everybody but in a really good way um at least for us that we got to be here kind of on the ground floor and the same thing kind of happened here on the culinary side so when we started up um, a number of restaurants were also starting and people had relocated here from across the country and uh, Walmart had done a big push with relocating suppliers. So there yeah, was, they did kind of strong arm their absolutely. suppliers into law, you know, like putting offices and Correct. corporate headquarters and various things around here. I noticed driving in like yes. along the interstate, you've got uh, like Kellogg and general mills and all of these folks that are you know doing big business with Walmart. They've all right. got office buildings here now. Yep. And most of them obviously came from somewhere else. So yeah. that was really nice for us that there was, you know, a built in population that wanted these things and had lived other places. Yeah, James Beard award-winning chefs right. at some of these restaurants yep. now in Bentonville. And, and yeah. that's the cool thing is that they all started up when we were starting up. So it's a pretty small, pretty small group of folks. And we've been fortunate enough to know most all of them and, and work with them closely. And they've been great, you know, proponents for, for our business. And, you know, they, they kind of saw us in the same boat with them in terms of trying to grow and uplift the, the culinary culture here. And uh, now we've been, We've been really fortunate to be here. I would definitely say, so we ended up coming to Benton County. Um, and Benton County went wet while we were planning the brewery. And so we had moved <laughs> That's to That's a crazy dice roll it's, right there. It's it crazy. And it was so um, fortunate. And I'm so like grateful looking back on it. But because of that, we really understood that even just for our tap room, like we were going to be setting the beer culture. And so um, I found that really fun for us to sit around with um, each other and with our employees at the time and really talk philosophically about like what that meant and how we wanted to shape that. And so for us, when we were thinking about it, um, we had to think about crossover beers. And I remember, you know, it's kind of funny back at that time, but Andy would be like, I just don't know if there's really any crossover drinkers. And it's like, well, like my dad was a Keystone drinker before, sure, you know, sure. and now he loves IPAs and pale ales. And so that, that was looking at the approachable beers, but then also looking at like, we want to make this a family friendly area. There's so much stigma still, um, here, uh, about alcohol and when it's appropriate and when it's not. And so we really leaned into, you know, the idea that if we make this a community space where families are welcome, then it, it becomes more of it becomes more than just a drinking establishment. It becomes right. like a cultural centerpiece for our area. And so that's just been been difficult in some ways and really fun in some ways. And 
but also helps change people's understanding of alcohol. That Absolutely. it's not a seedy thing that you go to that old guys go to a dark bar and, you know, and get knocked down, drag out drunk from, you know, right. that it can be a conduit to social activity and, uh, you know, general friendly social kind of thing. 100%. And I, I think that, you know, we do a lot with the community to really try to enforce this uh, ideas and the events that we have. Like one of our uh, most popular and most fun events that we have had at the brewery is that we bring Santa Claus in like at Christmas. <laughs> and like a lot uh, of it yeah. is our like personal like ideas. I remember, you know, we have small children. We have a son who's, um, you know, seven and a half. And so he's kind of been brought up with the brewery and, right. you know, just thinking like, man, I just don't want to go to the mall. But if there was a saying at a brewery, I would definitely come. And so that resonates with people. And it becomes a time when like the space is filled with kids and crafts. And, and for once it's like the parents being like, we need to go. And the kids are like, we want to stay. And so... Yeah, it's really fun. I, I love it because, you know, people argue on the internet about kids and breweries, you know, until the cows come home. Uh, and I don't care at all about any of that um, because I also have kids. And my gosh, if I can find some activity that uh, can entertain them while I can sit there and have a beer, then sign me up for that. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, one of our tricks we use is uh, we give Capri Suns away for free. Really? And so basically if if kids are happy, parents are happy. And, yeah. and most of the time they stay for a second beer if they can. Um, we even have kids that request to come here because they know they're going to get a juice box. So sure. that's a, that's a tip we'll share with everybody. You know, the one of the liquor stores in, uh, in Fort Collins where I live would give uh, lollipops to kids. And so, uh, like, I mean, it was an absolutely brilliant strategy. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to go to the beer store. Like, well, can I come? Like, yeah. okay, <laughs> sure. Cause they get a lollipop every time they go. Like, I mean, you know, it's, yeah, it's strange what, what kids focus on. I mean, it's, it's not strange. It's very predictable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so let's talk about some of those beers that you guys launched with, um, you know, in order to knowing that these are going to be bridge beers for people to bring them in and, and kind of, uh, you know, share the idea of craft beer with them. You had pale ale. Yep. We also had an IPA, which is uh, our number one seller on draft. And really it's more like a West coast pale, you know, yeah. IBUs are just over 60. It's nothing, nothing crazy by any means. And we gained a lot of traction with that beer, especially launching and with, pretty low ABV too. Yeah. just, just over 6%. Uh, it's a really drinkable IPA. Uh, it's one of those that it's a really nice go-to and it fit really well with a lot of restaurants where it's not going to overwhelm your palate. And the IPAs at the time, I mean, at the time we couldn't get most, you know, national breweries. Arkansas was something people kind of skipped over just because the dry counties that we right. mentioned already and the lack of, I guess, sales overall. It, it took years for us to get, you know, a lot of the, the big, big brewers that were in neighboring states. So there was a bit of a vacuum. I mean, for, it was a dry county a year before, so right. it wasn't like they were going to get into no. larger distributorships and, uh, you know, get reps out here in a state where, you know, you had to sell through a patchwork of wherever you could. Correct. Now, when we first moved here, uh, Avery IPA was pretty much the only one you could find. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously Diamond Bear had an IPA at the time, but it wasn't on draft as many places. And so we kind of saw that as an opportunity and try to make an approachable IPA that didn't just hammer you with bitterness. Sure. And, and in 2012, like bitterness and extremity, oh. like, I mean, craft beer was in the throes of its let's, you know, pitch ourselves against the mainstream. Right. Prove we're, prove we're different by being the most bitter and, you know, almost undrinkable kind of thing you could imagine with ragged bitterness and, uh, and insanity. So talk to me about how you designed that IPA, you know, thinking about how to make it more citrusy, more fruity, lower AV, but also balanced with a malt component. The funny thing is we've, that's, this beer is probably the one we've changed the most over time. Yeah. Little by little. Um, the hops have definitely evolved. And I think that we're really happy with where it is now. It's all, all general American hops, uh, Amarillo, Centennial and Chinook, uh, bitters with nugget, all really nice classic hops. And we found a really nice way, um, to make it hold up better. I think that's one of my, I think that we've worked really hard on is that when you get this beer and it's been, you know, in a can for a month or so that it still tastes and smells great. But, uh, when you, how did you figure out how to make that? It was, it, did it come down to hop varieties, come down to oxygen controls and malt choice? It was, it came down to hop varieties, I think. Uh, really? for a while there, 
you know, we, we had some different hot blends that we mixed in and some of them be great. And then some of them were like, Oh, this is okay. Uh, it hasn't changed drastically, but it's one of those that it's been an evolving process. And, and finally, we, we haven't changed it for a long time. Um, I think it's kind of hit its sweet spot. And we saw our can sales go up, uh, which was great. But our draft has held really, really steady with that beer. Is there anything, you know, with that hops choice to how and when you use it? Because, you know, certainly, you know, hot side additions versus, you know, with this current trend of all late hop additions, right? Um, you know, uh, changes some of that stability question too. Yeah, so we're we're doing uh, basically our dry hop mirrors our whirlpool additions. So um, you know, we do a, a single drop a nugget at the beginning of the boil, and then we do equal parts more or less of Centennial, Amarillo, and Chinook in the whirlpool, and then our dry hop is a little heavy on the Centennial side. Uh, and we found, you know, I think a lot of people's favorite beer or what got them into IPAs would be two hearted and trying to mirror that. Yeah. That's that, that aroma and flavor from Centennials is, is kind of where we started that direction. I mean, what a terrible thing to model right? yourself after. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still better than ours a lot. <laughs> well, that's what happens when you get to, you know, pick the, the first Centennial, For sure. uh, you know, and I'm sure that they are uh, the number one in line when it comes to that hop, generally speaking. No doubt. Um, yeah. When it, when, when you do select tops, I mean, and you all, what, what's the general volume in a particular year on average? Um, in terms of barrels, yeah. Uh, last year we did just over forty three hundred. In twenty nineteen, pre pandemic oh, okay. was five thousand and two, and we're a kind of bit on, smaller than I thought, given that you're you're out there in all the supermarkets around. We here. are, and that's one of the. I mean, as we talked earlier before we started recording, that we're one of the few places in the United States of the world that's benefited from Walmart being here. Um, that the fact that we're a local supplier here. So as you mentioned, a lot of the grocery stores are Walmart neighborhood markets. Yes, they are. Um, and so it's been a really great thing for us that, you know, we self-distributed for a long time. And one of the things that pushed us to a distributor was having to stock Walmarts, you know, two and three times a day and hit every store. It just became unsustainable. So no, we're, we're, we've been really fortunate to, to grab some shelf space and, and obviously the, the trajectory that the beers move off the shelf being a local brand, it's, it's been really, really great. Yeah. As you, uh, you know, again, uh, develop that kind of beer and, and evaluate those hops, um, you know, how do you describe that blend? Do you, uh, you know, I'm curious, you know, because it's a kind of a classic ish approach, but also, you know, you, um, it's not, it doesn't taste or smell old or classic. Yeah. You know? Um, no, it's pretty wild. We've even, I mean, we've even changed the yeast strain on it. We're now we're using the Edinburgh strain, um, from white mm. labs and we really like the character that brings just because of a little bit, a little more estuary. Exactly. Uh, it's really funny. Like you said, the dry hop being the equal parts, not one of those things really stands out. There's no sore thumb in terms of one hop is, is that dominant. Yeah. Um, we, we, we kind of found that whenever we put a little bit of Chinook in something, we always liked it. Hmm. Like we'd make a double IPA and throw, you know, instead of 15 or 20 pounds, we'd throw in five and you'd get some of that nice bright pine and a little bit of spice to it. And so we said, hell one day, let's, let's throw it in the IPA and, uh, put it in the whirlpool and the dry hop and then tried them side by side with, you know, a different version. And it was by far better. So I think that the, it, it, to be honest, it came about by accident, really just experimentation. Sure. But yeah. it's it's nice to think of a hop like Chinook as being one of those kind of role players, you know, the one of the we would call them point guard hops, you know. For sure. And they're not going to be the bigger scorer, but sometimes they, uh, you know, they distribute the ball, yeah. you know, in the perfect place to you know help the other guys score. Yeah, and when you have too much, it can be harsh and you know things like that. But we've been really really happy with with how it's turned out. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about that yeast a little bit. Yeah. Uh, Edinburgh strain. Um, what were you using before and why, and, uh, and then what kind of drove the idea of a switch? So we started with, um, our house strain was actually from Giggy yeast. It was the Vermont IPA strain. Mm. Um, and we used that for a long time. Uh, that was your house yeast. Just that was just what we used. Hmm. Yep. We did that. And then we, uh, switched over to the Chico and ran that for a long time. Um, then we started to kind of just have some ideas talking with Brant, uh, he, who runs our quality side and lab side and trying to figure out, you know, the beers were great, but they seemed a little one dimensional for what we were going for. They yeah. seemed a lot like everybody else's beers. Um, and so we really just 
looked on, you know, on the poster hanging on the wall and, and decided on a couple <laughs> and brought them in and it's like, Hey, let's make the IPA with this one, then this one, then this one, huh. and tried some smaller batch beers. And we really just settled on the Edinburgh strain is it, it's really versatile. Um, I know a lot of places have used it in the past. It's more brew pub focused maybe, uh, as a house strain cause it is so versatile, but we run it on the high end, the low end, and just really liked its character. When you so I love that you just brewed IPA trials and whatnot yeah. with uh, with all of these different yeast strains to see uh, how it goes because you're right you have to brew them at that scale with your you know in your proper fermenters to see how all those things work and then of course you know there's right temperature and pitch rates and all the other kinds of variables that go along with that how you know how you know for sure in the in the I guess for better and for worse at that time you know we were so young in the business and the beer was moving so quickly and that. You know, obviously we were evaluating for differences and right. could taste differences and, and see them and smell them, but most consumers at the time weren't. <laughs> and so it gave us some leeway to to go ahead and, and play around. You know, it's pretty it's pretty lucky really. Yeah. So with Edinburgh, you know, how would you describe what it uh, what it does for those IPAs? Or for we, those hoppy beers or and yeah. a lot of your beers now, I guess, since you're using it yeah. for other things. Too. So it's our house strain um, that most all our ales are fermented with mm-hmm. unless we're doing, you know, some a specialty hazy or something like that. Uh, it's just really clean and nice. Like you said, the ester side is it's it's there, but it's muted. It's not as big as, you know, a, a real big British strain. Um, it's not as clean and neutral as like Chico. And so I think it really adds a lot to hop flavor. Um, it doesn't really overwhelm. And... Like I said before, it was really by accident that we picked it. You know, we were just going through and, and trying to decide what what might be a really good one. Um, we were using one that was in the vault from White Labs, and it turned out like accessibility was our problem that we needed yeah. we needed it more often and didn't at the time have brink space or you know a smaller fermenter which we do now that we that we prop our own from a smaller pitch. Um, so it was really just kind of luck of the draw, and we sure. we liked the results and. And the beers have, have turned out really well. Well, I want to talk to you about how you manipulate that in varying ways, given you know the different beers you brew with it. Before we do that, looking for a good lager yeast, Fermentus, the obvious choice for beverage fermentation, provides brewers large and small with the most complete portfolio of dry lager yeast available anywhere. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentus.com. Also, as a brewery owner, you know how important it is to keep your machines running so you don't have to deal with the hassle caused by contamination, recalls, and downtime. Clarion makes food-grade lubricants to protect your equipment from the wear and tear that results in breakdowns that cut into your bottom line. Clarion gives you peace of mind so you can focus on what you do best, pouring out great tasting beverages learn more at www.clarionlubricants.com i swear i did not get into yeast conversation just <laughs> to t- i was a complete coincidence complete coincidence but let's talk about how uh you know that edinburgh expression works across some of the different beers you make and how you kind of adjust some of the expression of that so one of our other uh top selling beers is a cream stout and going back to a bit about your accessibility question we knew we wanted to make um a quote unquote dark beer offering. And so sure. at the time, you know, more we, people like those than people think they like do. Them, you know, and and so when they find it and realize like, Oh yeah, that, that's not as hoppy. I like that. Exactly. No. So we kind of experimented with Lacey's family and brought back some left-hand milk stout mm-hmm. and from Colorado and everyone was like, yeah, this is great. And so obviously ours is, is different from that, but it, you know, that lactose edition at the time, um, not as many people were doing that. And so obviously it helps with the body, uh, kind of sweetens it up obviously at the end and it makes it like our stout sales in the summer don't go down. Really? It's, it's one of the weirdest and most frustrating things, at least for me, is that <laughs> part of me wants to make it seasonal, but sure. the sales dictate that it needs to be around. Um, we obviously have more capacity now, so it's not as big of an issue, but at the time, you know, we had, we had, when we started up, we had three fermenters and just trying to fit that extra brew in when everything else is accelerating was, was always a bit tough. Right. Um, so really I think, on um, the Edinburgh shines really, really nicely in the stout. Um, we fermented a little warmer and that tends to bring out a bit more ester and things like that. So it's just a really, really great yeast. If you haven't tried it, I frankly would 
would suggest people give it an option as an you know, alternative house strain for sure. You're the first person that I've talked to on the podcast that has advocated for the Edinburgh strain. Oh. And so that's why I, I'm leaning into this one just because you know, it's curious. It makes it fun and interesting. I mean, that's, that's why we have these conversations. We've seen too, like our, our, our diacetyl rest They're like, we're getting clean beer a lot quicker. Um, which obviously as a smaller production brewery sure. helps, helps flip tanks better. Um, but no, it's been, we've been really happy with it. Like I said, we probably tried what, four or five, six different strains at one time, just to try to find that sweet spot of what was good to harvest. Um, and, you know, repitch we're doing usually 10 to 11 generations on our strains. Nice. Um, and that, a lot of that comes down to Brant, obviously taking care of our yeast and, uh, we, we count everything. It's, it's really well monitored. Uh, these days we're, we're buying nano pitches and kind of acting like a larger production facility <laughs> and, um, more or less, you know, propping up right, you know, right. and then brewing into it, you know, two to three days later. And we've had great success with that. So that's, that's brought our cost down quite a bit. And also the, just the general yeast health has gone up. Let's talk a little bit about lager brewing because certainly, and we'll, we'll get back and I, I definitely want to talk about BDCS somewhere, uh, you know, as we get deeper into it, but lager brewing kind of fits this, uh, you know, it was something that craft beer, uh, brewers didn't focus on early days because, you know, there was plenty of lager out there on the macro world. And, uh, yet over the last four or five years, American craft brewers have definitely, uh, you know, jumped onto the lager train, you know, fits your idea of making sessionable beers that are accessible to people that also fit the kind of lifestyle that people here in Northwestern Arkansas and, and uh, Southwestern Missouri like to live. Um, you know, how did, uh, how did you all make that kind of shift and pivot into, or not pivot, but uh, add lager brewing into your overall repertoire? I think that when we, you know, when you start a brewery, you're, you go from, you know, getting to travel around and getting to experience all this. And then when you start your head kind of just, it gets down and you're really just focused on a very like micro level of, um, you know, of craft brewing and that you're just focused on your own, what you are doing. And so we definitely didn't get to get out as much once we started. And so getting up to St. Louis, we were able to do that at least once a year. Um, we had some family up there. We would kind of always go for the perennial uh, Midwest Belgian Fest. And one of the times that we were up there, we got to go into Lake Urban Chestnut and uh, get to try their beers. And it's funny because when I was at the Midwest Belgian Beer Fest a couple years ago, it was the same thing. Like mm -hmm. all the brewers popped over and got some mm -hmm. stumptish over at yeah. Urban Chestnut. Like that was, that was going to be the thing. Yeah. And so I think we wanted to, um, kind of try that out for ourselves, uh, and see how that went. And we were also at a point where we were looking to add another, um, can option to our year round and looking at like, okay, what, what do we think would do really well? And so we settled on a lager. Yeah. So we call it Ozark lager. Um, we don't really attach a style to it on the can or, or on our messaging. Um, it's really just a, a pretty generic, you know, German pills, Tet, Hirschbrucker. Um, we bitter with Sterling. It's a really, really nice beer. I think what we really stride for was restraint. Um, I think what a lot of us like about like a, a, a really nice pills is that big hop forward aggression to a certain extent. And we knew that introducing this to folks, we're trying to grab, convince this guy or this person to buy our six pack instead of their normal go-to macro lager. Um, it's obviously gone really well. It's our number one selling beer, um, in a can now. And our draft is up drastically. When did it be, how did, I mean, because pale ale was your number one before that. And when did that shift from pale ale to lager happen? It was actually this year. So the pale, huh. the pale ale and lager were within what, 15 or 20 cases a week. Um, just steady as she goes. It's one of those that we, one week could be up then down, then up then down. They were always neck and neck. And this summer in last spring, we saw just a trajectory of, I don't know, people just caught on or just really figured out that this was a really good go-to beer. Um, and I think a lot of folks that we found too, if, if you're having friends over and you're trying to do some interesting craft beers or something like that, that this is a really nice, well-made lager that craft, you know, craft beer people like, but it's also something you can give somebody 
who drinks Budweiser or Coors and, and they're not going to dump it out. It's one of those like, oh yeah, I can drink this. This is okay. At least, so it, it checks a lot of boxes, at least from what we're going for in terms of drinkability. Um, it's right at 5% and uh, it's just gone really well. That's a recipe we haven't touched either from when we first started making it. It was funny. I, I uh, grabbed dinner over at the Hub Bicycle Cafe yeah. uh, last night and ordered a Ozark lager. And as it was sitting there, some some guys sat down next to me. And as they were ordering, one of them asked, "What is that that you're drinking?" I'm like o- Ozark lager. He's like, "That's that's what I'm gonna have." Yeah. Like they just saw it, and it looked <laughs> it it was the right color, yeah. and it was the right clarity. And I think that was the thing. I'm like, yeah, that's the beer that I want. No, that's very um, kind. Yeah. So, uh, so you know, so you don't label it a, a pilsner, and it, it's not as necessarily like aggressively hoppy as a lot of pilsners are right. these days. It, like we'd probably have to call it a hellas if it was anything stylistically. Just it's basically, but also better not to. I, I would yeah. ex- actually expect it to be maybe a touch more malt heavy as a hellas even. And and that's what I think we were going about when we said let's just call it Ozark Lager. Is this is just an easy drinking lager beer, much like this Vickle beer from from Urban Chestnut that we, you know. Lacey would a while back would said that was her desert island beer. It was like, man, these guys are obviously still setting the they're setting the standard for a lot of American lager brewing, um, and just trying to figure out how we could grab a piece of that and try to emulate it a bit. Um, and at the time, nobody around here was was doing anything similar. As a as an ale brewer, talk to me about some of the challenges into in undertaking lager yeah, brewing so, because you're still brewing into conicals. You know, you yep. you've got all of this structure. You're brewing on a kind of difficult 15 barrel it system is. that uh, is very manual with no rakes and a whole Correct. bunch of things, which will you'll fix here in the next few months as you have a brand new brew house coming in. But yeah, no, um, our system is an old. Uh, as many of you listeners probably know, it's or have seen in your own places. It's an old 15 barrel pub system built in 96. Uh, they're great. They're workhorses, but there's nothing fancy. So we run off by gravity. There's no rakes. Um, and you know, we, we mash in by hand, we, we grain out by hand and, you know, single infusion, there's no temp control. So it is a little more challenging on that side. A little, um, little more challenging, <laughs> a lot more challenging. And that's where, frankly, I have to give a lot of credit to, uh, to Teddy Pepper and, and Brant Bishop for, for what they, what they do day in and day out on, on the hot side and on the seller side. It's, we have obviously a very small team here and, uh, everyone brings a lot to the table. Uh, I had never made a lager before, before we made this beer, which is, I worked a couple, you know, obviously goose and then the small brew pub, we only had two seven barrel tanks. So it was always turn and burn. And, uh, we brought on a brewer who's, who's no longer with us, but he had some lager experience and we talked about doing it and just decided to. So, uh, same thing. We went through a couple yeast strains and we've settled on the, uh, the Copenhagen strain. So we use a Danish, it, it ferments really clean, throws a bit of sulfur, but cleans up really quick. Um, and we found that if we can keep that really happy, that our fermentations are, are flying. Um, really? so it, we get to have that nice conditioning time. Um, what's we, happy mean? Oh, just in terms of, you know, just smelling great, really, really early. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's been a workhorse overall in terms of it's, you know, we're, we're pitching usually seven to eight generations on our lager strain, mm-hmm. um, without, without trouble. And we're usually brewing, you know, we're between 60 and 90 barrels a week of lager. And, you know, giving it, that's what our infrastructure we've done the past year, year and a half is basically fermentation space for lager. So we dropped in a 90 barrel lager tank, um, which these days has acted more like a bright tank and, and we're just, you know, packaging pretty quickly off of it and let them age in conicals. Uh, but when we do have the time and, you know, forward thinking space that we should, we should have that our beers can sit the right amount of time versus, versus anything else. So that was a big thing that. How long do you lager for these days? Uh, these days we're putting about five to six week beers. Okay. From, from grain to glass, which we feel a lot more comfortable than, you know, trying to do a three week lager, which you can, um, we've done it. I think we have all done it at some point where it has to go <laughs> at out. At least you'll admit to it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but these days with, you know, like I said, the infrastructure we have put in that, yeah, that's a big goal for ours is that we're never, we're never hurrying that beer. And obviously, you know, we're taking someone's hard earned money and we want to make sure that the product we're delivering is, is top notch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so how do you keep that yeast health healthy and optimal? Um, so I think it really comes down to just pitching the right amount, you know, basically we're, we're, we're counting yeast, we're harvesting on, you know, within 
a, a good window in terms of like, we're not letting stuff sit and, you know, we're trying right. to, we're not harvesting off crash tanks, things like that. So we're trying to grab it when it's at its peak versus when we have time to do it. Um, so scheduling around that has been more intentional, definitely, um, on the yeast management side of just grabbing it when it's, when it's great. Yeah. When you, uh, when you taste your lager, how, what do you, what do you describe it as? This lager to me is, it sounds silly, but an everyday beer. This beer goes great with spicy food. This beer goes great with heavy food. This go, beer goes great just by itself. It's one of those that I think this is an everyday drinker that you can grab this six pack and then you can grab something wild, a big IPA or a stout or something like that. And this is a lot of people's staple in their fridge. Um, in terms of, you know, it's it's got a really delicate aroma. There's not a lot to it on the bitterness side like we talked about. And I think it's just a really, really approachable Beer. What, what's the IBU level on it? Oh, it's like 19 or 20. Yeah. It's yeah. real low. Sure, Most of the hops sure. are, I think the first edition on our 15 is like a pound and a half of sterling, you know, under, under 10 alpha. And then, you know, the, the whirlpool is, is split 50, 50 with Ted and Hirschbrucker. So. And this is also now spanned into some other lagers that you've chosen to brew. Cause I'm drinking an Oktoberfest yeah. lager here now too. So it's been really fun with the reception. I should say I finished the Oktoberfest <laughs> lager. Uh, oh, shoot. <laughs> no, it's, it's really been kind of fun to see the trajectory of those beers. Um, we actually did our first Oktoberfest just last year because we never had enough time and right. tank space to, to do it and, and let it sit long enough. Um, so we've, we've done some specialty lagers. Um, we put out a Schwartz beer a couple times and... I think all of us, we really wanted to make one because we yeah. wanted to drink it. And we were surprised by how fast it moved out of the tape, the tap room. So, um, we pretty much have at least one or two specialty loggers on at any time. Um, actually Wednesday we're brewing another one and we're talking about, you know, trying to keep a seasonal logger skew around, you know, four, four per year that are available for longer than just a one-off. So yeah. it's become more of a focus for us. I think a lot of, tr you know, trends, not just in what people are drinking, but what we want to drink. Um, I know there's plenty of beers that, that brewers want to drink that nobody else does. Um, sure, sure. but I think that, that like lagers, dry farmhouse sales. Yeah, exactly. I think that, you know, these beers fit into what a lot of people want and just didn't have access to, or didn't really know or around. Um, we've been really, really specific and careful too about our branding and making sure that it's accessible to people. If you, you know, if you make things hard when like, instead of saying Saison, because some people don't know how to say that word, that we would call it a farmhouse sale. And then we take that time during the conversation to explain what it is or talk about Saison, but you never want to make anybody feel intimidated or that they don't fit, especially here. Um, you know, we have folks coming in in overalls. We have, you know, construction people off the street, and then we have, you know, your hardcore craft beer drinkers that travel here just to drink our beer. So it's really, we're very intentional about what we call things. So if you yeah. put up, if you say Doppelbach, people are like, what, it, what is that? <laughs> sure, sure. Or, you know, Martzen Lager, like, what is that? So trying to make it really, really easy for people to enjoy something that we put a lot into without having to make them feel like they don't know what's going on. I feel that um, when people come into our tap room, it's it's a conversation over beer. And so I was, you know, we just softly opened a new location um, this last weekend. And so I was working behind the bar. And it's really nice when people come up. And we always try... Um, really hard to engage people. And so if they're, you know, really studying the list of beers and it's like, Hey, like, what do you normally drink? What, let me, I'm going to pour you some samples. And so it's nice when people are like, man, I, I'm just not that into beer. Like, you know, here's the macro. I like to say like, Oh, I have several options for you. Like let's run through. And it, it feels good from my side of the bar to offer people, you know, different options. And I think it feels good for, from their side as well to come into a craft brewery where they're not, um, maybe not the most comfortable and be like, oh, yeah, there's there's more beers than just one that I appreciate. And so it really just furthers that education and conversation that we can have around our product. I think you're right. And I think that there's a, you know, we have stereotypes even amongst, you know, those who of us that work in, in craft beer about what people would or can like. And I think 
the more time you spend behind the bar, you realize that people are way more complex mm -hmm. than that. That, uh, you know, the stereotypes about women not liking hoppy beers is completely wrong and that there are plenty of women that love hoppy beers and that will prove all of those kinds of assumptions mm -hmm. incorrect. You know, and that you find that, again, like people like dark beers a lot more than they think they do because there are, you know, flavor continuities with things that they like, like chocolate, you know, and roasty character that, uh, you know, they're common flavors for people. And if you can find those touchstones that connect people to that uh, and find a way to explain it so that they can build that bridge for them, then that's meaningful. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely agree. And, and even for us, like, <clears throat> I think that we see that with our, our team too, you know, like we are always looking for the best fit for us in terms of a team member. And that might not be somebody who is familiar with craft beer. And right. so there's been a number of, you know, um, people that we have working with us that might not, you know, that we are educating as well. And so it's really fun for us to be able to like go on that journey. And, and once you can talk to people about beer and you kind of find a style that you like, then it, then it becomes fun to go to the liquor store or, you know, your grocery store and look and say like, okay, I, I like maybe it's Belgian beers and to kind of try the range, you know, that you have. And it just, I think it's much like food in that way. And I think that that has also helped us in this area of just being a very like culinary forward is just saying like, this might not be something that you're familiar with, but that doesn't mean that you don't like it. And so, yeah, that's been a really fun part of our process. And this place is such a study in contrast because right there is that country element. And yet then there is this modern architecture and world-class art museum and high-end food, art, everything else that is, you know, that Walmart has, or the Walton family have brought to this kind of area. And so, yes, you've got this, like, like there are very few places in the world with this kind of range. You know, I've lived in New York City and New York City, you know, there's some range there, but you know, it's, very well developed in, in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, um, it's, this is, this is a kind of an interesting place given that kind of broad range to it. I don't think that we can, um, underscore like how important that that has been. Um, we are afforded a lot of things from being in this area. We're afforded, you know, people moving in on a regular basis from other places. We, have seen our tourism just explode in the last five years. And so, um, yeah, for every, you know, positive and negative that there is with everything for this area specifically, we have received so many benefits. I, I really compare this area a lot to just saying like, Every, you still feel like you're in a very small community. Like we are in the downtown of Rogers. We have regulars and people that stop in all the time. But this area as a whole, when you look at um, the surrounding Bentonville, you know, Springdale, Fayetteville, it it is all grown together. And so we're afforded a lot more of um, a metropolitan experience. We have theaters, we have amazing food and you get all of that with still being very small town oriented. And right. I, I am just, I'm so grateful for that. Like, I, I think we can't look at our growth and ignore that part of it. Sure. Sure. At the top, I mentioned that we were going to have to talk about, uh, BDCS bourbon, double cream stout. Right. And a given, given the background there at Goose Island, I think, uh, you know, uh, if you go and see what people who have worked there have gone out to do in this world of, of barrel aged beers, it's rather impressive from the aforementioned Fremont, uh, obviously yeah. you, Eric Ponce is now on a fire. So, I mean, this, just this broad network of, uh, you know, folks that have, moved out and kind of taken that inspiration and, uh, and you all are part of that kind of bigger, broader story. So talk to me a little bit about, uh, barrel aged stout and your approach to it. Really? When we first made the beer, uh, it was in 2015, you know, we'd been open just over a year at the time. Um, I guess a year and a half and we just wanted to make a barrel aged stout. Nobody was doing it around here. And, a lot, like you mentioned, being a goose, the recipe formulation came a lot from Bourbon County in terms of its its structure. Um, 
big, huge malt bill, obviously. And the biggest thing I know we mentioned in the article was IBU, uh, basically designing a beer that was going to hold up over time and eventually taste great. But, you know, when Bourbon County hits a barrel, it does not taste great. Um, Same same with Bourbon Double Cream Stout. It does not taste great. It's one of those that, like, it's all there, but you're like, man, you cross your fingers and you have some faith in the process that it's going to work out. Um, What is the IBU going into the barrel? It's just over 70, between 70 and 75. Um, we bitter with nugget just because we were over contracted at the time <laughs> Sure, <laughs> and it was high, high alpha. Um, and we had a ton of it. Uh, so really uh, some, most of that was intentional in terms of, you know, layering some caramel malt, some Munich malts, obviously the big roasted malts. Um, and I think the lactose edition, we were going much like our cream stout, um, that, you know, our, our main brand year round stout, that this would be more or less an Imperial version. Um, the recipe inputs are different to a certain extent, but, but that design of let's do something to help this body out. I think what a lot of us, like you can have a great barrel and a great beer, but if it's too thin, it just, it drops off and and no one wants to drink it. So I think that was a big, um, or that was a big intentionality of like, let's make this a really, if there is such a thing, an easy drinking barrel aged Imperial stout. Um, something that's a little more approachable, a little more round that kind of gets that harshness off that at least personally, I don't like about barrel aged stouts. Um, harshness in what way? Uh, on the booze side. Sure. Basically being hot. Uh, this was one of those beers that, that we made and there was a few folks around here that, that knew it was really good and they frankly helped us out quite a bit and they sent it all over the country um <laughs> that is really the the main reason that i think it got picked up by or on so many people's radar was um a couple guys because we didn't have a limit at the time there was I mean, right. there was no hype around it there was no nothing it was just you could come by as much as you wanted um and so i think i thought it was really good but you know at the time the feedback you, you just never know i was the only person you know, I was the only brewer at the time and, uh, it was their taste in my own beers thinking this is, this is pretty good, but you know, without, without others telling you that sometimes it's, you know, it's a little harder to, to figure that out. That beer is super interesting because we brewed that as a celebration beer. Like right. it was kind of a labor of love for ourselves and like, and what, you know, we were just starting out. And so when we brewed that first batch, we had like a little party at the brewery. I think like you get, we had like a $20 ticket and you could come and get dinner and we had like some music playing and it was just like, just nothing more than just a really heartfelt like celebration for, for the brewery and for our community that had just supported us so well during that time. And so that's kind of how it was the first two years. And then it, and then it kind of blew up. And so I think a lot of people assume that like we brewed that beer to blow up or that in any way that we had, you know, thought or projected that this would happen. And that that isn't the case at all. It really just was something that we wanted to do and just kind of tip our hat to everybody. And so it's been interesting. We haven't um, increased the amount that we've made in, I mean, a couple of years. Yeah. And so it's not, it's not something that we look at and say, you know, we could, we could make a lot more money. We're going to, you know, produce X amount more. That's, that's not really our feeling on it. It still is very much a celebration. Yeah. I mean, I think that as with most of these niche things like barrel aged beers, they don't, it doesn't grow in a linear fashion. No, it's, it's not like, Oh, if we make more, we'll sell more. Like there's a point where you start making just a little bit more than the market wants. And then you sell less, you know, absolutely. there's a tipping point there where it just falls off. And so it's nice to keep special and keep limited. And, uh, you know, you know, you never want to overplay your hand with that kind of thing because then it doesn't feel special to people no. either yeah. yeah and i think keeping out smaller batches also you know we we do usually two separate 30 barrel batches of it and then obviously blend them into barrels um but keeping it that small i think almost makes it a little bit better like obviously we could scale it up but then right. the variability of of all the barrels and and finding the right blend um this year we put in every single barrel usually historically we pulled one or two that we thought didn't you right. know, make the cut and then we adjunct them later and, and 
and make a special release some <laughs> later down the road. Classic brewer. Correct. If this barrel uh, doesn't work quite work, yes. let me see what I can uh, you know, add other flavors to it to make it work. Let's put a bunch of hot peppers or coffee in it. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, it's been it's been really nice. Obviously, we appreciate the the recognition we've gotten from it and uh, and the support we've gotten from it. But it's the nice thing is I think when, when people come to town for the BDCS release or, or they're able to pick it up, we're hoping that. Like we mentioned, they grab a six pack of pale or lager or something or come to the tap room and, and we're good at that. But we're, I think our team is, is really good at a lot of other things too. You know, there's a, a, a big world of, of barrel aged beer, barrel aged stout out there now. What do you think uh, are, are those, the signature elements that set BDCS apart? I think the fact that we don't add a bunch of stuff to it, <laughs> to be honest, um, I like big, crazy beers like a lot of people do um in small amounts but i don't want to drink usually a full glass or can or bottle of it um where bdcs i think sets apart is that you can pour a 12 ounce pour out of a can for yourself and sip it for a while and you still want to finish it um i think that it's just not too much of one thing what that's what not a very do, good answer to your what question what do you but. do to you know with the the overall beer design to foster that kind of drinkability and balance? I frankly think it was just the malt input. Um, yeah. So it, the, usually our recipes are really, really simple. We might do, you know, our IPA has four hops. That's a lot of hops for us in terms of recipe design. Um, a lot of times we like to do, you know, two or three editions or a giant Whirlpool edition or one edition. You know, it's, it's not, we don't tend to layer every five or 10 minutes. Um, we don't tend to blend six, seven, eight hot varieties together and make it too complicated. And a lot of that comes down to just ease of brewing. Um, you know, we don't throw five pounds of something in or 10 pounds of something. And usually it's, Hey, half a bag, let's make this easy on ourselves. And so the malt input on the BDCS is very much anomalous kind of for our recipe development. Yeah. Um, just cause it has so many different things in it. And I think all those, you know, there's a couple different kinds of caramel malts. There's, um, some Munich malt. Uh, we used a roasted wheat, which helps the body, but also, you know, it helps the smooth roasted flavor. Mm -hmm. Um, so really smooth roasted, there you go. If that's such a thing, um, I think that's instead of the sharp or like, you know, kind of acidic tinged roasted flavor. And we use more dark chocolate malt than roast. Um, and so really, I think all those things together, it presents a really, really nice canvas for basically you don't just taste one thing. Right. Um, the barrel then shines through quite a bit, which is what my personal favorite thing about barrel aged beers would be the spirit character, the wood character for the most part. Um, so trying to get more of the big vanilla and the nice body as opposed to just a certain, you know, pleasure. We're just not going to hammer you over the head with, with too much booze or too much roast or too much of one thing. So yeah, drinkability. And how do you source barrels for, to, to achieve that kind of thing? Um, traditionally, uh, we had a really nice connection, uh, through our distributor. Uh, they've, they've known the folks at heaven Hill for years and years. So we were Mm. able to buy, buy barrels directly from them. Um, once the pandemic hit that all kind of went out the window, Mm. they were so slammed with, with liquor orders that finding some extra room on a truck and, and getting them here was difficult. And so this last round, we actually didn't use any Kentucky bourbon barrels. We used Stranahan's and Dickel. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. Really, when we've worked with brokers, we work with Rocky Mountain Barrel um, sure, sure. over the years that really I'm not too tied to a certain brand or a spirit. Um, it really comes down to freshness. So we'll actually coordinate with them and figure out, get the beer brewed. And so by the time the barrels hit, it's like, give me what's fresh. I'd rather have, you know, and we'll split it 50, 50. So there's Mm -hmm. some more complexity and some variation, but a lot of it comes down to what can I get now that was dumped recently? Not that, you know, we'd all like to have Woodford and Buffalo trace barrels and, but sometimes marketing purposes. Yeah, Yeah. sure. But like they've been, you know, they might've been sitting around for a few months or older where we'll take fresh and I'd rather have fresh young barrels or maybe not a coveted spirit. And that's way. Okay. It's worked out great. I think some of that came from goose also, like we just used straight heaven hill barrels. Um, and that's what, what I sourced for, for years here as well was just bring them in and get them full while they're still wet. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Let's, uh, let's zoom out and talk about big picture. What is, what's, what's the, the near term future look like for Ozark and what is 
What's your ultimate goal for all of this? What, what does success look like? When will you know that you all have achieved it? Maybe you have, or maybe you know it's still hanging out there for you. I think like a lot of people, like our our plans have changed a lot in the last eighteen months, and kind of what we had originally planned or what we were originally thinking, um, you know, went out the window, and it was kind of like kind of an open road. We could kind of make choices, and so. We have had a lot of time to reflect on that. And I think for us, what the future holds is just making this a sustainable brewery in terms of people's time and effort and energy. Um, and I say that um, just because I feel like for Andy and I, you know, when the pandemic hit, we were at a point where we were going to be able to step back a little bit. And that, of course, has changed drastically. We are very much right in the middle of everything. And I, I don't think that there's any plans on that changing. And so looking at our team as well, I think that for Andy and I, a lot of our success is because of the people that we have here. We do have a very small team and most everyone has been with us. I mean, we have, we have people that's, that have been with us from the beginning and most everyone has been here like four or five years now at this point. And so looking at how do we move forward so that this is a great place for people to work and that we're not being burned out and we're not burning out our employees and that we're able to be part of the community and to just feel good about what we're doing and about um, how we treat um, our people and the people that we bring into the tap room. And if that is sustainable in the long run, then I think that is success. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to uh, wrap this one up in a bow. G&D chillers will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. Set your compass by Rar North Star Pills. Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Take your favorite recipe and make a non-alcoholic version with the ProBrew Alchemator. If you're a lager brewer, try Fermentus portfolio of dry lager yeast available anywhere and make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, consider our new all-access pro subscriptions. I shouldn't call them new. They've been around for a while now. Uh, Our all-access pro subscriptions that combine magazines, exclusive content, and more. Of course, if you're a subscriber to the Brewing Industry Guide, you can read the wonderful feature, cover story feature on Ozark Beer Company, written by our managing editor, Joe Stang. Highly encourage you to read that as well as listening to this episode. Um, Lacey and Andy, if people want to learn more about Ozark, where do they find you all? Yep. We're, um, you can follow us along on social media um, at Ozark Beer Company. Uh, our website is also ozarkbeercompany.com. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you all talking to me about brewing today. Uh, it's been wonderful to see it and wonderful to sit here in person and do it. It was great to get some bike riding in yesterday on these amazing trails and uh, you know, huge trail network here in Northwestern Arkansas. But yeah, cheers. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jamie. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.